This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Series 4, Episode 12, the finale, the mammoth last episode. We're going to do like a two hours where you don't know if one of us has died at the end. <laughs> oh, I'm, I might actually be dying of cold at the rate it's going here. I'm out in my shed for the first time of the season. I can see my breath and I'm having to wiggle my toes in my boots to keep them moving. So if you had been a mammoth, that would have been quite handy because you would have been warmer. Yeah, <laughs> we're covered in a thick layer of shaggy fur. Although I'd imagine it's quite hard for mammoths to podcast with the tusks because they would bash the mic, wouldn't they? Quite a lot. So we'll wipe them out. <laughs> the inability to podcast. <laughs> be a good thing if that happened to people, wouldn't it? There'd be no one fucking on. Everyone's got a podcast now, haven't they? Indeed. In fact, Ed, you shared that wonderful cartoon on our WhatsApp chat of a loving couple and the woman is saying to the man, next time, could you not use your podcast voice? <laughs> Any of us been accused of that? All the time. Really? I don't think I have a podcast voice. Unfortunately, I've married a woman who doesn't listen to any of my output, so he's blissfully on a wall. I think I even do a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Does she do a podcast? No, she's asked me to do a couple and I, and I haven't. So you can imagine the tension it's caused in our marriage that I choose to spend my time every week with you two and not my wife. <laughs> just wanted to know what you've caused. We're just bringing the oral conjugal rights to your life. There's enough stuff with husbands and wives, isn't there? And I know, because I make half of it. There's a dreadful new show on Channel 4, isn't there, about that? Okay, right. <laughs> yeah, and a dreadful new series starting on Dave in April. <laughs> 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 meet the twats. <laughs> <laughs> Should we do Meet the Future Notes then? Do you think? Could that be a show? Well, exciting news, isn't it? That we have, if not a venue yet, a date. So this may be the last episode of this series, but it won't be the last bit of output until Series 5 because there will be a live show on Friday, May the 12th. Yay! What was it? Friday, May the 12th. Did we not check with you? Oh, hang on. Live update. There might not be a live show. <laughs> no, no. I was just I was just thinking we need to get that very clear so people can hear it. That was what I was thinking. Oh, I see. Oh, you were doing like a rock and roll thing. What time is it? <laughs> it's Future Notes time. Friday, May the 12th, sometime in the afternoon, I'm guessing. You know what May the 12th is? No. It is National Limerick Day. Oh, fuck. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, so I will definitely have to roll out a bespoke limerick to celebrate our first live show together. Right, and I'll just have to roll my eyes. Yeah, well, keep your eyes peeled on the Twitter 
future notes socials instagram as well maybe for a live show that will be opened with a limerick and then a prog rock introduction for Mark Stevenson featuring the phrase, what time is it? Yeah. I want you to open by saying it's the future, motherfuckers, and then come out in some sort of future garb. Is that possible? Yeah. It's also National Nutty Fudge Day. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do for that, John? <laughs> That's my own assault. <laughs> National Nutty Fudge Day. Also, International Nurses Day. Okay. Okay, I would have opened with that one, but we've all got our favourites. Yeah, National Public Gardens Day, so maybe we should do it al fresco. Maybe, I, I think not. I think I want to do it in a pub with beer. I think, though, we should definitely try and get a nurse along. All right. On a more prosaic level, it's National Odometer Day. <laughs> <laughs> they really are desperate, aren't they? And also Shades Day, so we're going to have to be uh, donning our sunglasses. And who the fuck saw, you know what the world needs is national load vomits. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great. It's like, be thankful for the odometer. Yeah. A device that keeps track of your mileage. The history of National Odometer Day goes way back, apparently. Right. Okay. Surely only as far as zero. <laughs> it was 1847. William Clayton invented his roadometer and attached it to his wagon while heading to Utah. Do you know what I love about the beginning of this episode? is that we've almost single-handedly convinced everybody not to attend the live show <laughs> by how fucking boring it is. <laughs> but at least we'll be in a pub, not a garden. <laughs> if nobody does come, at least we can get drunk. Yeah. And you're playing the Apollo the next evening, John. So if anybody wants like a John Richardson sort of weekend, they can come to the podcast recording on the 12th and the 13th. They can go and see you at the Apollo. They can indeed. Tickets still available. I imagine that will be the same with Guildford on the Thursday if you want to see what I look like. Excited about a live podcast. You know what the 13th is? Oh, here we go. Bloody hell. National Crouton Day. (laughs) (laughs) I'll hope that you have got an internet tab open and you just don't know this stuff off by heart because that would really worry me. Also, National Babysitter's Day. You'll be needing one of those that night, John. Yeah. All right. We could just go through the year. (laughs) Exactly. We could be here for some time. You've been away. You went on a residential since we last recorded, and I never wanted to ask what that meant. It's one of my uh, responsible leadership residentials where I facilitate a whole group of senior leaders trying to re-engage with their responsible leadership practices and do some good stuff in the world. So, uh, yeah, I was up in Manchester for four days. Well, I big brother. You live with them. Pretty much. We're all in the same hotel. And for all of these overworked and overwhelmed senior folk, it's quite an extraordinary experience to take three and a half days out of their day-to-day to think and reflect and refocus. So, yeah, it's always inspiring. Although the trouble was I put my back out the week before. So I spent most of the week high as a kite on Kokodamol, walking like John Wayne. Wow. This week in the Responsible Leadership House, the senior <laughs> executives of the Metropolitan Police have realised they're complicit in the breakdown of society and yet that's how they pay their mortgages. Oh, no, we're fucked. <laughs> Wait, were you there? Have you been listening to transcripts? <laughs> that was a rare foray into the world of accents for Mark Stevenson there. Yes, and I think having done that, that will remain uh, a, a very... Oh, I liked it. It came round. It was a little bit Scandinavian at the start, but then it came round. It found its roots. Also, tackling Geordie. I mean, that's ambitious as well, because that's notoriously difficult. Well, thank you. I uh, take your praise. It's so rare for you two to be nice to me that I'm going to take that. What have you been up to, Mark? 
what have I been up to? I've been running Curate, the carbon removals business. I say I've been running it. We've got an amazing CEO called Marta who actually runs it. I've been wandering around trying to invent new ways to take carbon out of the atmosphere, getting people to buy carbon removals. And also, actually, Ed, thinking about how we train our team. So it might be that we all turn up and you can train us. That'd be funny, wouldn't it? It would be. I do have some skills and experience. Yeah, some. And uh, <laughs> what a bombshell to drop Series 4, Episode 12. Yes. I do have some skills. <laughs> well, no, I've, just, I've been co-writing songs with Brian Eno and a small group of singer-songwriters. This is a rift in the podcast, isn't it? You're writing songs with Brian Eno and he's sat over there in his corporate glass-fronted office. I know. When also, I'm deploying my poetry. Yeah, in a way, I think that deploying is the right word because it sounds like a weapon. <laughs> it's a very blunt one. Yeah, like a cluster bomb. The week we're recording, I logged onto my phone yesterday to see Paul Whitehouse trending on Twitter. That's always a moment, isn't it? You think, oh God, what's he done? Not one of my idols, but he's done a great documentary about water companies and their frequent inability to not put shit into our rivers. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Did you see it? It's such a literal shit show. When you hear it laid out in the way it was in that show, it's gobsmackingly awful. England and Wales are the only countries in the world to have a fully privatised water and sewage system. And obviously we talked about this, I think, way back in the Future of Shit episode we did what feels like half a lifetime ago. But when those water companies were privatised, they were debt-free in 1989. And since then, guess how much money has been extracted for shareholders in those last 30-odd years. Is it a lot? 72 billion quid. Jesus. 72 billion pounds in dividends. And they've done that because they've basically shacked themselves up with loads of debt. They've managed to pay their senior execs tens of millions of pounds in bonuses in just the last five years or so. And the worst bit is, because they've shackled themselves with all this debt, they then use the repayments on that debt to offset their tax. So they don't pay any bloody tax in the country. So, And at the same time, we know it's all dysfunctional because literally they are regularly and repeatedly filling our waterways and our beaches with poo. It's just a diabolical nightmare and I don't even know where to begin. And is it universal? So when you say the water company, so we're talking Thames Water, United Utilities, Yorkshire Water... Yeah, pretty much most of them are, I say, owned by these offshore investors. There's a few pension funds involved, but they're involved with these big private equity firms. The most infamous one is Macquarie, which is uh, this Australian private equity firm, which is known in circles as the vampire kangaroo. There's a mental image for you. If you wanted this a poetic metaphor, we've got this vampire kangaroo because of the way that they rent the businesses they invest in for everything they're worth. Mm. No, it's awful. I'm Fergal Sharkey, who will, um, a good heart. As he put it, he says, these companies are completely out of control. Actually, we're going to start running out of water, as well as all these diabolical emissions of sewage. No one's putting the money into the system that's required. And so, unfortunately, the taxpayer is getting screwed constantly. And they reckon the main driver of household bills rising by 40% is to do with those debt repayment costs that these businesses have orchestrated. So, And it's also a colossal failure of the imagination about how we could be doing this better. I mean, Mark would always say the system is broken, but in this instance, 
the privatization that's been foisted on us as the only countries in the world where this has happened has been a manifest failure. That's a cheery start to the episode. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, we wanted to talk about unfucking. There's also a massive populist opportunity because 80 to 90% of the public are in favor of renationalizing these businesses. And there's also a precedent to do it without compensation to those shareholders. You look at when Northern Rock crashed in 2008, that was taken into public ownership without payments to the shareholders. So we could do this with the right political will. So that does seem like when you say, you know, what is the solution? Well, it, that does seem fairly straightforward. Yeah, yeah well, it would allow us to invest in the public interest rather than to service all these offshore shareholders. I'm always wary of, I think, of trains as the silver bullet not necessarily being putting them back into the government to run because that wasn't the perfect service either. Is there a time before nationalisation of water where there was a particularly great problem? What was the reason for privatisation in the first place? How did that ever happen? I think I can answer this because Ed's been talking a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's because I do the research. (laughs) These are mere details. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there's a bigger philosophical problem here, which is if you concentrate too much power in too few hands, whether that's in public ownership or private ownership, you get inefficiency at best and you get corruption at worst. And actually, when the water companies were under public ownership, it wasn't like they were like the world's most efficient, brilliant things either. So ideologically, the right wing comes along and the Tories come along and go, well, ideologically, then we've got an angle in here, then they're inefficient, they're not being well run. We have demotivated staff. Surely this could be run like a private company, which has some idea of competition and efficiency and all that kind of stuff. And that's a fair argument. The problem is that those things are kind of what you would call natural monopolies anyway, because I remember I actually did some work for Thames Water once. And the poster on the wall if our customers could, they'd choose us. Meaning basically they can't choose anybody else because of where they live. So what you've done then is you've got this kind of chimera where you've got basically what is a natural monopoly that probably should be state run, but they've bought in private companies because they weren't being particularly brilliant. And we all know about the inefficiencies of government. But then you get the same problem. You've got too much power in too few hands, this time private hands. And what have you got? inefficiency in the fact they're not delivering the service and corruption because they're rinsing the place. So this is a sort of a larger philosophical argument about how we do these things. And one of the ways you get around that is you try and distribute the power. And if you, for instance, looked at the German model where they have this idea of Stadwerk, where actually lots of the water and electricity or whatever is owned by multiple, multiple, multiple municipalities, you know, with the energy system and something like 600 different Stadworks exist. You do get some inefficiencies because of them all having to collaborate, but you don't get these massive levels, hopefully, of corruption and inefficiency. Can I just say great use of the word chimera? Oh, thank you very much. This is the second time you've been nice to me today. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> do you know what actually constitutes a chimera? Is it you take a sustainability expert and try and turn him into a poet? <laughs> and it comes out quite horrible. <laughs> No, it's a fire-breathing female monster, which is very appropriate for International Women's Day, resembling a lion in the front, a goat in the middle, and a dragon behind. Wow. Okay. So not a monkey, then. What's the one I'm thinking of that's a monkey? You're thinking of a monkey, John. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't think of a monkey. <laughs> I don't know what the monkey one is. Hanuman, he's the Hindu god, isn't he? He's a monkey god. Yep. Good. I'm glad we got there. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm glad this is the last episode because it feels like we're running out. (laughs) (laughs) Hello there. My brother-in-law recommended your podcast to me very recently and diving into the back catalogue, 
genuinely opening my mind about so many areas. There you go. I'm flitting between the latest and earliest ones, so hopefully we'll end up somewhere in the middle around late June. Anyway, my work sometimes takes me into working with large oil, gas, energy companies, and many talk about the energy trilemma. In your podcast in series one, you mentioned this, but also talk about it as almost a false choice. I think it may be Mark speaking to it, and it isn't fully explained, but the sense I got was it's an overly simplistic reading of the situation. I've tried Googling rebuttals to the trilemma framework, but I can't find it. Apologies if I've read or listened incorrectly, but if I'm reading it correctly, could Mark or Ed explain whether there are other ways to think about the energy situation that are more helpful? Thanks in advance, Will. Well, the energy trilemma is basically this idea that there are three things you need for a robust energy supply. So one is security in that it stays working all the time, it doesn't fall over all the time. It needs to be there because you know you need to run hospitals and economies and all that kind of stuff. The second is affordability. It needs to be cheap enough such that everybody can afford it and you can pay your bills and all that kind of stuff. So it has to have a production cost that is low. And the third thing is it has to be sustainable in that it doesn't damage the planet. And the argument is like you've got to find a balance between these three things. And what that's used is an excuse because quite often people go, well, you know, we have to have fossil fuels because there's security of supply and actually they're cheaper than renewable, except that has now been destroyed, that argument. So actually, if you design the system differently, if you designed a distributed renewable system using today's technology, then you could have security, affordability, and sustainability. So when you say you're trying to find a balance between those three things, no, no, we could achieve all of them if we changed the way the industry was structured and financed and indeed thought philosophically about things. Because if you say there's a balance between affordability, security, and sustainability, that's ridiculous. If it's not sustainable and it destroys the ecosystem, then there is no affordability and security because you've destroyed the world, you stupid fools. So saying there's a balance between not fucking the planet and affordability and security is literally the dumbest argument ever. And it's another example of groupthink where people can wheedle in between these things. Oh, it's a balance. We've got to get out. It's like, think fucking bigger, you stupid cunts. Legislate better, fund it better, (laughs) work harder, get on with your fucking job because it's pissing us off. Looking at that and going, affordability, reliability and sustainability is now going to be known as the arse framework <laughs> i like that because it is just basically a big ass yeah richard richard says hello guys and ed i don't know what that means <laughs> <laughs> interesting why am i out on a limb are you transitioning oh we know it's the exclamation mark gag isn't it ed ed as i shall now be known I live in Australia and run an eco-glamping facility. Solar power, tank, water, rapid, septic system. <laughs> Sadly, I listen whilst on the lawnmower about 30 acres, but we can't with everything. Where's the accent, John? Come on. I don't know, bloody Yebby Creek. <laughs> in 2010, I rode a boat from the Canary Islands to Antigua in 72 days, and we had a small desalination water maker on our boat. Here come... Apart from expense, is this not exploited more? It would not only use an endless source of water, it could help lower rising sea levels, and in theory, if the plants are situated in the right places, allow for clean water to be pumped around all continents, just like oil and gas is nowadays. Valuable reservoirs wouldn't go dry. Much-needed water in areas of drought could be supplied for crops. I look forward to hearing from you. Okay, well, desalination is relative to cheap steel on a small scale. So the thing is, on his boat, he wasn't using a huge amount of water and he was probably being very careful with it. 
when you get to the level of needing the huge amounts of water that society does for everything from industrial processes to bathing us all every day and giving us taps of water, then you need to go to a larger scale. And desalinating at a large scale is very expensive. The way we do it mostly at the moment is this thing called reverse osmosis, which is basically you, you put water at very high pressure through a membrane and the membrane strips out the minerals. The problem with that is it's very energy intensive and also those membranes have to be incredibly robust. Now, there was a lot of excitement about those membranes being made out of things like carbon nanotubes recently, but it turns out that the nanostructures don't really stand up to that kind of pummeling. So there is a quite a lot of work going on in desalination. And actually, if you just reduce the cost of desalination by a few percentage points, you can get huge benefits for the economy. But mostly it's an energy cost play at the moment. So yes, you can have cheaper desalination things if your demand is very small, but it's not really the way you would want to do it on a grand scale. But you do go to countries, for instance, in the Middle East, where that is one of the biggest sources of their water supply, but they're spending a huge amount of money doing it. Yeah, they've got a shed load of cheap, available, abundant fossil fuels, unfortunately. I mean, it also reminds me of our good friend Michael Paulin's Sahara Forest Project, which was talking about using concentrated solar power to desalinate water and then use that to irrigate the desert and revegetate it, basically, to turn hot brown dry places into lush green and fertile ones i also remember where, like back in the day when thames water were talking about doing desalination in london they wanted to put the plant in barking which just felt appropriate <laughs> i wonder how much water do you think you could desalinate for the 72 billion pounds that has been taken out in uh shareholder profits by the water companies a couple of liters <laughs> in changing climate is it ever going to be practical to revegetate desert areas surely that problem's already going to get worse not better i think there's lots of work there's what they call the sort of green wall across africa which is a reforestation project to stop the spread of desertification and i know the chinese have done enormous amount to work on this as well it wouldn't necessarily be involving desalination but yes replanting and irrigating areas to at least arrest, if not reclaim, desertification is going on all over the world. So one really good example of this is the lowest plateau in north central China. This was an area that was desertifying, was losing its agricultural wealth, was kind of falling apart really from an ecological perspective. And over a period of years, they changed the way they planted things, they looked at the ecosystem, they introduced different species, and now is this incredibly verdant, rich diverse ecosystem that's also very agriculturally rich. So you can do it, but it requires quite a lot of grand planning. But we can reverse all sorts of things if you think about it. It's just that the ambition is often not there. But I would urge listeners to go and look at the lowest plateau story because it's pretty extraordinary. All right, that's some homework for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) So on the subject then of reforesting and things like that, I listened to the Desert Island Discs with Professor Corinne LaCarre who is very climate conscious, but discusses the practicalities of having a daughter who lives in New York and being very honest about the fact that she flies from here to New York quite often and lives sustainably as she can within that. And I think it's one of the things we talk about a lot is sort of realistically, what can you do and how can you offset certain areas given the practicality? And I have a lot of arguments with my family about how we live sustainably and the things that are still acceptable to do. And I've been thinking about, at the end of my tour, buying a small patch of, it'd have to be very small, but land somewhere to gradually a forest and rewild, more as a project really for my later years, because it's going to take a long time. But is it A, practical? Is it B, going to take too long to have any tangible effect on the emissions of our family 
as they happen? And is it C, a vanity project for wealthy people to feel like they can carry on living how they want and just buy a bit of land and be all right? Oh, oh, this is what we call the Ed Sheeran dilemma. (laughs) (laughs) Ed Sheeran's bought half of Suffolk. I know, yes, indeed. So first thing is, in one way, it's a really good thing to do because all the research says that the more connected we are to nature, and in fact, I've been looking at something called the Bioleadership Forum as possible training for my team as well, which is all about leading as if you were connected to nature. So any more connection with nature will just change your perspective on pretty much everything else because you'll begin to see yourself as part of this wider ecosystem. So from a psychological perspective, doing something like that is very useful in terms of... Is that with, is that with Andres? Andres Roberts? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that bad? No, he's lovely. He's a brilliant man. Do you remember? He's the one who inspired John to camp in his garden. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, good. That's not the noise I want to hear, though, after people say my name. You don't know with John Richardson? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, the second thing in terms of your emissions, if you were a forest in the trouble with trees, they take a long time to grow. So the carbon could be pulled back, but it would take quite a long time. So it wouldn't be dealing with the emissions that you're emitting now. You'd have to have to plant an awful lot probably to do your lifetime emissions. And also, how would you verify that? But then you would also get other co-benefits if you did it well, which you'd have like, if you rewild a place and you do it well, you get increased water retention, you get increased soil carving, all sorts of wonderful things that can happen. But it's not the solution to answer it is kind of a vanity project for rich people because they can afford to do that. And it is nice. But globally, we need to build a regeneration of both the biosphere and we need to remove lots and lots of carbon very quickly. So it's a good thing, but it's not the only thing you should be doing. I think you could do that. And I think that would be a brilliant thing. And if you could use it as a way to educate people into staff as well, so you put an education program around it as well, that would be wonderful. But if you want to also remove your emissions in time to save the planet, then you'd have to do other things, like potentially work with my company. But I don't want to use this as a promotional law. Well, we are doing that. (laughs) John's Wood for Good. I like it. (laughs) That sounds like a porn movie starring John Richardson. John Richardson's Wood for Good. While we're doing dubious sexual language, do you want to have a little chat about what you can dip in my gravy? (laughs) How hot is your gravy? Well, Steph's gravy is very hot. Steph's been in touch after our chat about the uh, gravy fondue last week to say I don't have anything profound or any questions, but after listening to Series 4, Episode 11 and your discussion about Prime Minister's gravy fondue, this was taken at the Sun and Airs Liverpool-based wedding to my lovely daughter back in July 2018. The man insisted on a gravy fountain. So it's a yeah. chocolate fountain filled with gravy and at the base, cocktail sausages and Yorkshire puddings. Oh my God. Oh my God, it looks amazing. <laughs> I cannot believe that I've never had this conversation with Lucy before. And with her 40th birthday coming up this year, can I just thank Steph for introducing me to something that will keep the marriage going. Let's not F about it. Yeah. That's a marriage-saving innovation. And I would recommend Jamie Oliver's vegan gravy recipe to put into that gravy fountain. Yeah. Yeah. Vegan Yorkshire's a bit trickier, though, aren't they? I was going to say, how do you do vegan Yorkshire's? It must be possible. You can do, though. Yeah, I've done them. Are they any good, though? Yeah. 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 What's the secret? You do them well. (laughs) (laughs) You use chickpea water instead of milk. It does seem to be like the chocolate fountain manufacturers have completely missed a trick here, haven't they, about diversification of the product? Mm. Yeah, they're like the Vladimir Putins of the fountain world. You know, they haven't diversified the economy. And and custard fountain. Yeah. Jelly fountain. 
How would that work? I don't know. <laughs> I'd be more like a jelly jacuzzi that you dip things into. Oh, God. <laughs> this is a very long email that we won't get through all of, but it speaks to Ed's favourite thing in the world, which is the uh, AI bot chat GPT. Yay. David says, I love the podcast. It got me to thinking, what does the AI bot think of the situation we're in? So I asked it, are we fucked? If so, how fucked are we? And how can we unfuck ourselves? Good stuff. Devastating response that the entire four series backlog of this podcast has been pointless and you could have just asked chat cheap. <laughs> Love and rage, David. The situation regarding climate change and its potential impacts is certainly concerning, but it's not necessarily hopeless. While there are challenges and risks, there are also opportunities for action and positive change. The impacts of climate change are already being felt in many parts of the world, and they're likely to become more severe in the future. These impacts could include more frequent and severe heat waves, droughts, floods, storms, rising sea levels, loss of biodiversity, among others. The potential consequences of these impacts could be severe, ranging from economic and social disruption to threats to human health and well-being. It also sounds remarkably pragmatic when you hear it from a robot. Yeah, well, exactly. I remember that robot will be grinding through everything that everyone's ever written about climate change. Do you know what I think is happening here? Because you remember a few episodes ago, you asked it, it have heard of the podcast? And it said, no, never heard of it. I think it has, and it's using the contents of the podcast to answer that question. No, never heard, John Richardson. These are all my own thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, get this. He's gone on to ask, give me five things I can do now that will make a difference. And ChatGPT says, absolutely, here are five things you can do right now to make a difference. Reduce your energy consumption. Reduce your meat consumption. Use public transportation. Reduce your water consumption. Support renewable energies. Boom. There we go. Would that be your top five? Not far off. I think we mentioned it before, but the jump has its six behaviours, and definitely all of those would be in there. Perhaps not framed in exactly the same way, but remember, all of this also is pushing stuff back onto us as individuals. So it's not about the system change. I mean, that said, the jump calculated quite sharply that about 25% of the emissions reductions that we need by the end of the decade, by 2030, do come from individual behaviour change. But as we bang on about endlessly, that will only take us so far without some proper systemic thinking. So, uh, chat GPT, come on, more system change, please. Again, it's the same with the mental health crisis. So we've got this mental health crisis, which pushes everything back onto you and what's your mental health without thinking that the reason many people feel miserable is because the system is literally destroying their souls by forcing them to work in a degrading and destructive economy that basically tries to rinse every kind of bit of work out as though without that much reward, they're all going somewhere else. So they say, oh, so you've got a mental health problem. It's like, well, yeah, but we need to change the system so not so many people have them. One of the things I would definitely add to the chat GPT list is if you really want systemic change and you have any ability to do this, then I would donate money to Client Earth and similar law initiatives that are challenging the system in the courts. And a very successful example of this, which you mentioned before, was last year, Client Earth took the UK government to court on its net zero strategy, said it's not going to deliver net zero. The High Court agreed. And as a result of that and a few other moves, we now have a new department for net zero set up a few weeks ago. And that is system change. Well, I'm glad you said that because when you were talking, I was wondering about why, I mean, obviously not chat GPT, because I don't think if you're looking for your radical thinking from an AI bot, you're not going to get it. But why the advice is here are things you can do and why in terms of mental health, we talk about strategies to cope because there's a sort of leaking feeling that systems change is not 
as possible as perhaps it once seemed. And I think people feel sort of slightly futile and there's a sort of vicious cycle to thinking, well, the reason I'm in this position is because of the system. The system's not going to change. That will impact more negatively on your mental health than then you feel worse about the fact the system isn't going to change. Indeed. I think the feeling is that people feel both helpless and complicit, and that's a very horrible place to be. But the thing that I always go back to, and I've said many times in this show, is the great quote by Alice Walker, the American novelist, who said, the quickest way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. And the more you start to exercise it, the more you have what influence you have on other people. Everybody is a leader, even if it's a very small way. Grabbing that agency is one of the most important things you can do. Lovely. Turning to Twitter, Luke says, since we've praised Mark a lot, and we've said Ed's name with an exclamation mark, Luke says, thank you for answering my mum's question about public transport in France. She's now made us all listen to it and is treating it as her moment of fame. Um, more seriously, interesting answer. I was good to hear your opinion on it. P.S. Very accurate Fred Jackson. <laughs> taking that phrase and I'm choosing not to read out the crying laughing emoji which he's put after that which I think may undermine some of the sentiment and that's from a man who lives in France oui oui <laughs> Kevin has sent us a paper on healthcare carbon footprint and where we're going wrong so from big pharma to transport to our front door at Imperial NHS has put in place green champions to work through this and that's something I've not heard much discussion on there are certain industries that i think in terms of talking about government commitments to net zero the nhs is somewhere where i would probably say well we've got big problems in the nhs in terms of funding and how we treat the people who work within it but it feels like possibly another stick to beat them with to expect them to be carbon neutral but then i guess they have to be as well if we are to achieve net zero well, no, I mean, they've got an absolute nightmare on their hands. We're all feeling the pinch on rising energy bills. But if you take a big hospital that might have been paying, even under the previous cost regime, was probably paying a million pounds a month for their energy costs, and that goes up to four million through these rising prices, then that obviously has an effect on what they can deliver. It's just blown their budgets apart. And that will have impacts on the clinical services they're able to provide and obviously patient welfare and well-being as well as all the staff being rung out so you have i've heard talk of people suggesting that these hospitals should just turn around and refuse to pay uh, actually make a political issue out of this it's like how are you supposed to run a system when your energy bills quadruple and you're already on the brink and maybe they should just draw a line in the sand and it would require solidarity across hospitals but it would also, I think, spike some of the huge profits that the energy companies are currently making and force us all to look at it in a more systemic way. It's almost as if you shouldn't have most of the energy supply controlled by people with massive vested interests no. or raving autocrats. I mean, <laughs> it's a strange thing. I've been saying this to governments for several years, like moving over to distributed renewables thing is a national security and energy security absolute priority. Oh, no, we don't need to do that. We'll just carry on buying the cheap gas from the Russians. Oh, so this is a failure of systems thinking again. And the problem we've got at the moment, because everybody is now seeing this fragility where everything is linked to everything else. And that's what COVID and that's what the war in Ukraine has done for everybody. Like, oh, it's all linked together. And so it's this pulling back of the veil. of like, Oh, okay. I suddenly see how the energy price is linked to healthcare. And actually climate change, the biggest single threat to human health is fossil fuel air pollution. One in eight people get killed by that year. So it's bigger than cardiovascular. So all these things are linked together, but we don't think about that. I mean, again, the idea of that we have separate government departments often don't talk to each other. How often does the Department of Health really talk to the, well, hopefully the new Department of Net Zero and Energy Security? Hopefully they'll be talking a lot because they could work together. Because you've got so many, you have the cabinet meetings 
Yeah, but they're running out of people to put in that now. Imagine being the Tory MP that hasn't been a minister yet. You'd be like, what is that? Oh, that guy must be really upset. <laughs> He's like, what have I done? Is it Grant Shapps has now been a fucking minister seven times uh, in four years or something? I mean, how can you possibly do a decent job? The whole system is fucked. Get the Tories out. I mean, I try to be remain apolitical, but these people are fucking incompetent. And they're scraping the barrel of competence right now. And they're supposed to be running the country. Get the fuck out, please. Just call a general election. Please piss off. <laughs> Chances of that happening? Zero, because power corrupts and the whole world's gone nuts, to quote a uh, quantum big lyric. The whole world's gone nuts? Power corrupts, so the whole world's gone nuts. It's a quantum pick lyric from a song called Monsters, which is about political failures. I should play that for Nutty Fudge Day. <laughs> I think we should play some of that out as our end of series four. I think that's a beautiful finale to realise that, do you know what? Quantum pick had the answers from the beginning. Yeah, it's probably as we haven't recorded it yet. We've only played it live. Okay, do you want to sing some now? Uh, I could if you wanted. <laughs> I don't think you really want me to. <laughs> well, I don't have to be on the call, do I? I can wrap up the series and then just sort of put my mic down and go downstairs and make a cup of coffee. <laughs> you can sing it, right? I don't have to listen. Sort of like climate change, I don't have to change, do I? Yeah, you do, really. I can support all the changes, but I don't have to do anything, do I? Well, you can lend your celebrity sparkle to everything, John. Yeah, exactly. I signed Hugh Fernley Whittingstall's petition to get the ban on onshore wind overturned that's me done in it i can get on a private jet now and go and do my gigs in dubai right absolutely i fully endorse this way of thinking i'm going to plant a tree in a field so by way of end of series reflections what do you gentlemen think we've learned what have been your personal highlights oh no it's a test do you remember what we've talked about it has been an interesting one for me because i've enjoyed the more spontaneous and reflective nature of series four I think what I've realised from that is that actually when you leave the three of us to just react to the system as it is and the questions that come in, it tends towards a more depressive bent. So I think where we've been able to maintain pragmatic optimism in the first three series, that's because we've all gone away and <laughs> worked quite hard on it <laughs> and done an interview and then gone away and thought, right, how do we put an end on that podcast that's positive? So I think for series five, I would like to keep it the way it is that we do react, but it's a lesson for me in terms of the bulk of the questions that come in. And I think certainly at the beginning, we're just listeners saying, fuck me, how do you cope? I remember the first four or five episodes of this series saying, keep your questions coming in. And I would say nine out of 10 were, how do you maintain mental health <laughs> in this field? And I think the listeners probably heard a different side to certainly the two of you in terms of your and I think that's been a good thing, your gut feeling, because I remember asking you quite early on in our other work together on Ultimate Worrying Things, you know, how do you stay positive? And you say, well, you just have to work at it. Some people aren't born positive. It's not a naive belief that everything's going to be all right. You work really hard at it and you work really hard at maintaining positivity. So I've enjoyed hearing that. And I think we're ending in a different state. But I also think we've maintained all the laughter that we've had in the other series. We've managed to laugh through the bleakness and that I guess is where this podcast strength lies. It's quite frank confrontation of where we're at, but an ability to laugh as well. Very good. Mark? Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Mark. Reflection. You're really good at this. Reflections on the podcast or on life generally? We were prompting it in terms of the context of Series 4, but if you want to do it on a more existential basis. I think the big reflection that I've had is I've realised, I think, through our conversations, just how angry I am. <laughs> I mean, I've always been quite angry about stuff, and that's why I do what I do because I think things need to change. But 
it doesn't take more than a couple of listeners' questions to sort of rip that open. All of a sudden, I'm like, it's all fire, fucking ages, and I want to, which is in a way quite nice because it's kind of a fire on your belly, as John Lydon once said, anger is an energy. It's just how you direct that. And I think sometimes you can get so angry that you can be misdirected in something you're spinning around. And so I think a righteous anger has risen in me more than I realized. And the other thing I've realized is I think there's too much poetry in the world. And <laughs> I... You're going to have a campaign to remove poetry from the world? No, just some of it. Come on, well, you say your anger is your energy. So what are you going to do with that poetic anger? Why don't we do that poetic anger? More prog. We should direct the creative <laughs> juices from limericks to prog rock. But the other thing I really enjoyed is I think the three of us have become even more friendly, which I've really enjoyed. And when we met up, we hardly ever meet up in real life. It's like, even though, John, you were doing your massive show, you kind of like, we spent most of the evening chatting to each other, which I thought, oh, this is great because we do discuss big, deep things. And then it's like, oh, come on, let's have a pint. And it was lovely. I loved that. I love you guys, basically, is my big reflection. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Well, on Love for the Podcast, let's end with our first ever WhatsApp. And that's not to say we have a podcast WhatsApp, but one has come in to Uncle Mark. (laughs) And it says, I've run out of podcast episodes. Sometimes I do five or six a day. Can I be one of the listeners badgering you for new ones? So who is this addicted listener who has messaged Uncle Mark? It's my wonderful niece. Charlie, who is doing a PhD in organic chemistry, trying to work out how to trick viruses to kill cancer. She's an extraordinary young woman and I adore her. She's one of those people who's just kind of overachieving everything. She's like a brilliant rock climber. She's a very nice human being. She's a vegan with a nut allergy. That's pretty tough. She's in incredible shape. She's very kind. She's brilliant with my kids and she's trying to cure cancer. But I did say to her, I think I replied to her saying, nobody needs this much chair in the air if you have some kind of problem. (laughs) <laughs> episodes a day that she needs help i looked at the screen grab of the whatsapp and with my 50 year old eyes i was sort of squinting at the icon in the top left hand corner which reveals who it is and i was like looks a bit like mark she doesn't look like me doesn't she well that's probably a good thing if she's doing five or six a day though she's got to be well up there for best listener i feel like that's something we should really kick on with in series five we need to get to the bottom of it You'll get bonus points if you come to the live show. I think that's a fact. Definitely. Gary, who we spoke of last week, says thank you for reading out my question and talking about it for 50 minutes. First time in my life I've had anyone talk about any of my musings for longer than two minutes. Onwards and upwards, looking forward to the zombie apocalypse. Gary, currently rising to 31st best podcast fan. And I'm a big fan of this from Richard on Twitter because it contains exactly the tone we're looking for, and especially when you talk about where to channel your righteous anger. It's a generous question. It comes from a fan of the podcast, but there's a pissy undertone to this that I enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) You asked for a question from your diehard fans for the final episodes, and I feel the tone has to be, will season five maintain a proper weekly schedule and start in a timely manner? (laughs) (laughs) No promises. Yeah, I responded to that with one word. Maybe. No, yeah. no, absolutely not. <laughs> You're not even leaving open the possibility that it might happen. No chance, no chance in hell. I think the other thing we need to explore is also this League of Pragmatic Optimists idea. We need to, I did send you an email about it, boys, and you both ignored it. I didn't ignore it. I simply filed it into a folder for future reference. 
I know. I've had our mutual friend Paul staying, Mark, and he's been walking around wearing a T-shirt which is saying the League of Prismatic Optometrists. Yeah, he had that specially made to just to troll me. To piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Actually, the League of Prismatic Optometrists might actually be quite compelling. Well, if you can find wherever they are. <laughs> Where better to end after a frank discussion about how you maintain your mental health with... That was being trolled by both our listeners and Mark being trolled by his own friends. <laughs> so lovely to know that that's going to go on until we return. We will return for Series 5. It will once again have your questions at the heart of it, so here's how to send them into us. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Yeah, keep on rocking and trolling. Keep on rocking and trolling indeed. And we'll possibly see some of you for our live show. There'll be details of that on the Twitter page, which is at J and the F. And I think that's it, you know. I'm stalling about it because I don't want to say goodbye. Ah, parting is such sweet sorrow. It's not. I've got stuff to do. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get Ed back in the warm. Let's get Mark up to uh, floor 15 and his smarties. And you back to your to-do list, John. Oh, I've got a busy day. See you later. All right, lots of love. <laughs>